0: As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God, we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us. Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. Excuse me. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So, The men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they had lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of, wa- drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them.
1: Well, good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, this week I had a, or actually a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a very interesting conversation. Many of you probably remember several years back Dan Brown, the novelist, wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. It was turned into a movie by, uh, starring uh, Tom Hanks, where he is uh, a Harvard professor who the Vatican brings in to help them with a ministry. And in the process, uh, this Harvard professor pulls back the curtain to reveal how the church, through the centuries, had deceived the gullible people of faith um, by not including uh, books in the Bible that are supposedly Christian, uh, and they were left out because they didn't give the message that the church wanted to have given. It didn't. They didn't want the message of that you know was basically by today's standards pro feminist that was uh, showing that Jesus was not actually God, that he got married and had children and royalty in Europe and descended from him and, and all of these different things. And it was, of course it was this huge conspiracy that the church committed in order to suppress the truth and subjugate women and any voices that contradicted uh, the, their version of the gospel. It's amazing, it's amazing how this has taken hold and, and I hear it on a regular basis from different people i hear the media anytime there's a religious conversation in some way or another this this idea is alluded to but in reality in reality the very people who embrace it are the ones who are gullible not those who accept as a faithful witness to scriptures as we have it uh, the, these books are not Christian gospels, not Christian books. They were rejected in the second century by the church, the early church fathers, because they knew that they were fraudulent. It's interesting, back in the pandemic, or during the pandemic in 2020, uh, Christian Askland, who is an uh, evangelical expert on Coptic Uh, papyruses and manuscripts. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently is. And he wrote an article entitled Closing the Case on the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Uh, He writes this. On September 19th, 2012. Slide, please. This thing is not working for me. Um, Yeah. Uh, Is it on? Okay, here we go. Here we go. On September 19th, 2012, The world awoke to a coordinated set of press releases. Harvard Divinity School professor Karen King had unveiled a papyrus fragment with a Coptic text. Quote, Jesus said to them, quote, my wife. According to King, While this gospel of Jesus's wife fragment didn't prove Jesus had married, it did renew discussions about marriage and celibacy in the early church. Media outlets did not always accentuate this nuance. In fact, the media used this as justification to create documentaries and all kinds of things to try to show that Jesus is not God in the flesh and that he was married, yada, 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 and the church is filled with misogynists. Continuing on, sitting at a conference in Rome, along with 200 other coptologists, I stared at digital images of a papyrus fragment that could, in theory, prove a central article uh, argument of Dan Brown's fiction. That Nicene Christianity, as orchestrated by the fourth century emperor Constantine, effectively suppressed feminist forms of Christianity that celebrated a married Jesus. Fascinating story because of what happens. Very quickly. Evangelical scholars dig in and they say, this is, a, this is fraudulent, it's not real. But of course, in today's environment, in the academic world, conservative evangelical voices that are related to religion and archeology span and history are automatically relegated to the back of the bus. Um, but soon, they were joined by others who were not conservative evangelical Christians who began to show that this fragment was fraudulent. Now what's interesting is Harvard's response In 2014, they doubled down. They bring in experts from Stanford and MIT and they do the infamous double-blind studies. We've heard that a lot recently. And the double-blind studies, they say, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this fragment is real, this is legitimate. How can you question this? But of course, in time, what was discovered was that their fragment was a forgery. In fact, not just that fragment, but multiple fragments that they had bought were forgeries. And the forger, it was discovered, was a German pornographer with a penchant for Adobe Illustrator who had studied Egyptology when he was in college in his early days. And he passed all of this off on them and they paid a big chunk of money for that fraud. But to be honest, Conservative Christians do have a reputation for being gullible, and, and we demonstrate it on a, lot, on a regular basis. Through the centuries we have, I mean, Martin Luther railed against the Christians of his day for how gullible they were, and the things that they would put their trust in and believe in, and we, and we do it too, it's just progressed. I mean, for example, um, Stephen Green, who is the founder, president of Hobby Lobby, um, He was a driving force behind the Museum of the Bible. Wonderful museum, you ought to go visit it up in Washington, D.C. Driving force behind the Museum of the Bible. He gets this thing off the ground by donating 16 very expensive fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that he had purchased beginning around 2006, 2008. The museum gets up and running, only discover that all 16 of those fragments were forgeries. And in fact, not just those 16 fragments in their museum, but approximately 16 other fragments in museums all around the world were forgeries. They were snookered. People got rich off of it. So, whether it's biblical archaeology, or diet and exercise, health and wellness programs, and diet fads, or political conspiracies, or medical science, conservative Christians. Like our church, we repeatedly demonstrate a high degree of gullibility. And we become complicit in the deception by how we, we spread it along and we pass it along, especially nowadays through social media. And we put things out there that are just not true. And we're complicit in the breaking of the ninth commandment. So why does this happen so frequently? And it does happen frequently. I mean, it's not getting less offensive, it's getting, seems to be more prolific in the world that we're living in today. That as Christians, we pass along just junk. And it's not credible, it's not true. Why do we act so gullible sometimes? I think our story this morning has something to say about it. Our story this morning shows that the gullibility of God's people is not an uncommon experience, and one of the reasons why is because we experience something across the centuries and we have something in common with our ancestors and in our heritage in our uh, spiritual heritage with God's people. In this chapter, you see a common experience that God's people ex- face. In the chapter, the Israelites are confronted by a confederation of city-states. Nations who've realized very quickly, if we don't unify, if we don't stand together, we're gonna fall separately. Now, when we look at this passage through 21st century sensibilities, we look at that and say, man, that's a smart move. And they should do that. After all, the indigenous people of Canaan are being invaded and and, and there's a conquest that's being attempted here. So they should resist this. And and we take our 21st century perspective on colonialism and imperialism, and when we lay that down on this story, we could almost be sympathetic to this confederation, but that's not what's going on here. Again, we're reminded that when we read the scriptures, when we study the scriptures, we're to do so not from the perspective of 21st century Americans, but from the perspective of God. We're to see these events as God sees them. And so remember, this invasion and conquest is not a modern version of nation building. Hundreds of years before, God prophesied this event. He prophesied that this was going to happen to the Canaanite people because of their egregious, pagan, sinful excesses and practices that characterized the Canaanite people. He gave them hundreds of years of mercy to repent they did not repent, it just simply got worse. So what we have here is something much more than just nation building. This is not just the, the, the unjust expulsion of an indigenous people. God's people here are part of an eternal cosmic struggle that has God on one side and God and his people on one side and the forces of evil, including sinful humanity on the other. This is what's occurring. This confederation is emblematic of the greater battle and the greater spiritual struggle that lies behind the physical realm that is so much larger than armies and walled cities or political opposition or cultural antagonism. This, what's happening here is emblematic of something that each and every one of us experience on a daily basis just as the Israelites were experiencing it. As the apostle Paul experienced it, he writes in Ephesians chapter six, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. As God's people, we would do well to remember who the true enemy is and how we resist the evil forces of this spiritual realm. As Christians, we have no right as God's people to resort to violence. to, to look at the war passages here in Joshua and conclude that what God wants us to do is take up arms to fight against those who are antagonistic against the cause of Christ. That's not how we're to read these passages in Joshua. What's happening here with the Israelites is for a limited situation under God's direct command But as we unpack the scriptures, as we go back to, for example, Ephesians six, Paul reminds us that we are in a spiritual war. Our warfare is spiritual in nature, not physical. Our enemy is not the physical people that we interact with on a daily basis. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy who's working through those people. The way we fight this battle is not with physical weapons and social media arguments and all of the things that we are resorting to. No, the way we fight this war is with the spiritual weapons that God has given us. And in Ephesians chapter six, Paul continues and he says, these weapons that we are to use include the sword of truth. It's truth, the gospel, God's word that we bring to the arena, that is the weapon that fights this spiritual war. Too often, we forget the kind of conflict that we are actually engaged in, which then leads to a common mistake by God's people. You see this in verses three to 15. This confederacy is formed. It's all these strong nation and people, uh, nation states, people groups. And one of the strongest is four, made up of four cities with Gibeon being the largest, a very strong city. And in, in the Gibeonites, they're part of this confederation. Uh, but they have another scheme going. Uh, the, while it looks like they're going to join in, what they actually do is they say, hey, we know who this God is. We know what has been happening to all of the people who try to resist the God of Israel. If we simply go at them front on in a frontal attack with this confederation, we're gonna be destroyed because they have God fighting on their side. And so they came in through a rear attack. You gotta kind of admire, I mean, there's a part of my flesh, I know it's not right, but I kinda like cunning, you know, Slick movies, you know, caper movies and, you know, Ocean's 11, 12, 13, 25, whatever we're at now. You know, I like that. And and what the Gibeonites do here, I mean, gosh, you got to admit, it's kind of slick. They come in. And they, they, they got all the details in line, right? They, they have the worn out clothes, they have the moldy bread, they, they pretend like they hadn't even heard about Jericho and Ai, and, and they have their wine skins that are about empty and cracked in their age. All the signs of people who've come from a faraway place. And they say to them, we want to be at peace with you. Now, you look at verse seven, you can tell that the, you know, there's a little niggle in the spirit of the, of the Israelites. They, they kick the tires here. There's some skepticism here. But, and they, they look at the evidence and they interact with the people, but ultimately, they make the wrong decision. Why? Why does that happen to them? Why does it happen to us? What, what can we learn from this when it comes to making decisions that are God's decision in the will of God? First thing we have to notice here is that the Israelites made a wrong decision because they were told what they wanted to hear. In verses eight and nine, 11, three occasions, the Gibeonites are like, we are your servants. And and then they said, we want a covenant of peace with you. We don't want war. I mean, everything that they're saying and the way they're saying it, it just appeals to the flesh of the Israelites. And then as you look through this passage, you realize that they were deceived by a, a historic toxic mix that Christians have been deceived by throughout the centuries. What they did is they filled their narrative with lots of truth. They say all kinds of things about God that are absolutely on point and true, but the truth is intended to hide the more damaging falsehoods. So everything that they say about God and Israel's history is true, but this manipulation of the truth is in place so that they can manipulate the hearts and the decisions of the people. Now, you read this passage and how many of you, and it's okay if you raise your hand, it's okay. It's not like you're gonna, you know, God's gonna be mad at you. How many of you, at least to a certain extent, are kind of sympathetic to the Israelites in this situation. Raise your hand, okay? Man, y'all are a hard group. Uh, at least a few of us have some sympathy uh, for them, okay? I, I mean, it's easy to see how they were deceived. And it wasn't like they just said, oh, you are, okay. You know, they, they kind of, you know, in kick the tires. And then as you look at this, they, what happens is they're moved to sympathy and compassion for the hardships of the Gibeonites. And so church, when you are told what you want to hear about a situation that you are facing and the message contains at least very obvious truth in it and it's delivered in a very sincere um, manner, it's easy to be deceived. And if you think, oh, not us. Well, we have decades of history now where conservative Christians should not judge harshly here because We fall for the same toxic mix every single election cycle only to find out later that we've been duped. We are a bunch of gullible dogs. I mean, what is going on here? We do it every year. We fall for the same toxic mix, for the same approach from people who want something out of us. And then you look at a third reason here The Israelites don't wait upon God. They rush into the decision. They look at things, they examine it, and yes, we'll make a covenant of peace with you. Three days later, only three days later, they discover who the Gibeonites actually are. I mean, they're only 20 miles away from their camp. That's how good they were at deceiving them. Why does that happen? Alan Redpath writes this, in his book on the book of Joshua. He says, when common sense says that a course is right, lift your heart to God for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a direction completely opposite to that which you call common sense. When voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribunal of heaven, then, If you are still in doubt, dare to stand still. If you are called on to act and you have no time to pray, don't act. If you're called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God. For none of them that wait on him shall ever be ashamed. That is the only way to outmatch the devil. So the Israelites, they heard what they wanted to hear. There was this mix of truth in there that that they resonated with, and then they rushed in their decision-making process. But most importantly, the single critical, most critical reason why this happened in their life is that they relied upon their own understanding of the truth instead of God's revelation of truth. Without a doubt, that's what it is. Now, I think it's fair to say that the Israelites, their hearts were in the right place towards the Gibeonites. I think their heart was even in the right place in their desire to obey the law and, the, and the God's law. And the reason why I say this is because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God gives the Israelites instructions. And he says to them, listen, if you come across people who are far away, in other words, they are outside the promised land, to the best of your ability, make a covenant of peace with them. Don't have war. Now, if you have to go to war, wipe them out, pillage it, take all their possessions for yourself, but to the best of your ability, be at peace with them. Now, if it's somebody within the borders of Palestine, there is no peace. You must drive them out of the land. And so, when the Israelites, who Wrongly, falsely so, believe that these people are from far away, they actually obey the law of God. They make a treaty of covenant of peace with them. So I think their hearts were in the right place relative to the Word of God. The issue here is that their hearts were not in the right place and how they viewed themselves and their own abilities. They overestimated their own skills and abilities to make godly decisions. They relied upon themselves. Their heart was not in the right place relative to their vulnerability relative to their fallenness and their humanity, relative to God's will for them, their heart was not in the right place. And so verse 14 says, and this is the linchpin verse in the entire text, the Israelites did not ask counsel from the Lord. Literally, the mouth of Yahweh they did not seek. The mouth of Yahweh they did not seek. Why? Why would they not seek the mouth of Yahweh? Why would they not slow down and take time to ensure they're making the right decision? Well, Max Anders writes, we find it difficult to make our way past verse 14, which is laid out for us so clearly. They did the human thing, but not the divine thing. They did the earthly thing, but not the heavenly thing. They treated this decision as a matter of logic, not a matter of spiritual insight. Fundamentally, what happened here was when faced with the decision that needed to be made, the Israelites were walking by sight, not by faith. And church, how often do we repeat the same mistake? I mean, you think about it. Common sense logic says, I make all of this money, I can spend it and use it however I want. Spiritual insight says, it's not your money, it's God's money, and we are entrusted with it to meet the needs of God's kingdom and our family, and that order of operations is really, really important. A logic common sense says, wow, this is a great move in my career. I'm being offered an incredible opportunity. This is a great move. It comes with a lot more money and a promotion and the prestige that comes with that promotion. But when you pause and pray and think and talk with counselors and listen to God, you might find in your spirit, the Holy Spirit revealing to you that the the extra money and the prestige sometimes comes at too high a cost to you personally or to the health of your family or to the relationship with your wife or your children and that what looks and glitters is not always actually gold, is it? But common sense says, take that promotion. Take that extra money. Common sense logic says, why, that person looks awfully good. I think I'd like to ask him out or ask her out for a date. I think I'd like to go out on a date with him. I mean, after all, we should date. Well, look how, we, we, first of all, they're attractive and we we like the same kinds of things, we eat the same kinds of foods, we laugh at the same, uh, we're so compatible. Um, I mean, all of these areas, it's like we were made for each other. But spiritual insight, God's wisdom tells you that your compatibility in those factors is irrelevant compared to the most important factor, and that is this person isn't a Christian and you are. Therefore, you have no business dating them because you are not compatible in the area that is most important that has eternal ramifications. Logic and dating, or logic and common sense says, since God loves me, surely God would want me to follow the desires of my heart, the desires that I have to live in harmony with how I feel. But God's wisdom, his will says, no, our hearts are desperately wicked. We cannot trust our hearts and our desires and the things that we may want. We have to check them in relation to God's will. Parents, I don't even know really where to start for you. All the things that you're facing today. I mean, you're bombarded with a message that has all kinds of truth in it and, and all kinds of things that you can relate to. You want to give the very best life to your children that you possibly can. You want to give them every advantage that you possibly can so that they'll be successful in life. We can all resonate with that truth. Anybody a parent who's ever lived wants that for their children. But we woven in with that truth is the lie that you have to pack those schedules with all kinds of activities, that you have to have them in all of these different events and all of these different kinds of life experiences to develop their resume so that when they go to college, they stand out and one day can get a great job to make a lot of money as if that's the sole purpose we have in life. And when you think about discipline and how you're to raise them, there's so much pressure on you, even within the Christian community, that is doing a masterful job, and you hear me, parents, they're doing a masterful job of weaving into their narrative, biblical principles that are in the scriptures, and they're welding it and combining it with human wisdom, the best of childhood development. Well, I'm sorry, I don't trust Dr. Freud and a lot of the others who've come in his steps since him. Why? Because when you really look at what they're saying, they are denying critical aspects of the scriptures. Parents, no one knows your child better than your Creator. And He reveals to us how we're to raise our children and how we're to lead them and disciple them and and discipline them. Parents, how can you turn the focus of your child's heart onto Christ when you put so much before them that appeals to their flesh? It's hard to overcome all the things that you're putting into their life that the world and even Christian voices are saying you need to do and this is how you need to raise them. It's hard to overcome those obstacles and turn that little heart towards Jesus. You don't need your common sense when it comes to raising your children. You need what God's word says in raising your children. So we do it all the time. And this is why in... Proverbs chapter three, we are told, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own, what? Understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That's why in James chapter one, verse five, we are told, if any of you lack wisdom, here's your se- chance to redeem yourself, church. Raise your hand if you lack Wisdom. Okay, good, that was better, all right. It's all of us. It's a promise for all of us. If any of us lack wisdom, let us ask of God who gives liberally so that we can make the decisions that we need to make. Christians, when we lean on our own understanding, trust in a form of truth that doesn't come from God, we'll quickly find ourselves in a mess, just as the Israelites did three days later. And that mess will then bring to us and before us a common temptation. Happens to God's people all the time. Happens in this passage. We're not gonna dwell long on this, but let me just say that when it was discovered that the Gibeonites were the enemy, how did the congregation respond? Kill them. They deceived us. We do not have to keep this covenant. The people wanted to avoid the consequences of their decision. Thankfully, the leaders did not compound their sin and break their oath. There's a simple point that we need to see here. The the leaders of the Israelites understood that to weasel out would have been the greater sin because it would dishonor the name and the reputation of the Lord. So there's a principle here. Even when we make a a sinful decision, when we make a vow, when we make a commitment, especially in the name of the Lord, and we say, I will do this as a Christian, I'm gonna do this, you can trust me. We then don't have the right to just simply weasel out of it. God expects us to fulfill our commitments, even if the consequences of the decision aren't always pleasant. I saw a, a graphic example of how this is being rejected even within evangelical Christianity this week. On my Instagram feed this week, I saw an evangelical pastor, a a celebrity pastor, give a devotional, and this is literally what he said. I couldn't believe I, I, I replayed it three or four times because I couldn't believe I was hearing it. He said, quote, don't stay in a bad marriage with the wrong person. God wants you to be in a happy marriage with the right person, end quote. Now listen. If he simply meant there that God does not want you, wife, who's in a physically abusive relationship to stay there and to continue to be physically abused, you need to get out of that marriage, I would have said, amen. Okay? If, if he was saying, listen, your spouse is a serial adulterer, this is a bad, This, this, this is broken and you're immoral, you need to get out of that marriage, I, I would have said, amen. But that's not what he was saying. He went on to his pat how you know, you can start out and you can agree on things. In other words, you're compatible, but things happen and people change. And this person that you're living with now makes you miserable. Why sit for decades in misery? God wants you to get out of that and find the right person. Now listen, that is incredibly logical, isn't it? Isn't that logical? I mean, think about it. If this person is the obstacle to your happiness, the solution is get rid of this person. Not literally like in the ground, but you know what I mean. Get out of that situation. But that's not what God tells us in his word. Except for a couple of of egregious reasons, we're supposed to honor our commitment. We're supposed to stick it out work through the difficulty. You know, the interesting thing is that the studies show that couples who make that decision to stick it out, and yeah, it can be a miserable phase of marriage, can be hard, but normally in three to five years from that decision to stick it out and work through the rough times, they say, overwhelmingly, my wife is so much better now, I'm happy, because they honor their commitment, honoring our commitments. This story has all kinds of great truth in it, all kinds of it especially practical applications on how to make decisions. But this story is more than a morality tale or a good guide to making good decisions. The story also gives us a Christ-centered response to failure. In the closing verses, you see that Joshua says to them, why did you deceive us? Verse 22, saying, we're very far from you when you dwell among us. Now therefore you're cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And verse 26 says, so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day and the place that he should choose. As God's people, We should be comforted and we should be encouraged that our wrong decisions, even if our wrong decisions are coming out of right motives, we should be comforted and encouraged that even our wrong decisions with their consequences do not have the last word in our lives. This is certainly true with the Gibeonites. They're cursed by by Joshua. They're, They're put under a curse and they're assigned to To work, and part of that work is to bring the water and the wood to the tabernacle and to the temple for the sacrifices that are done to atone for the sins of the people. And clearly, over the decades and centuries, the Gibeonites are influenced by this proximity to the worship of God, and they begin to see how faithful God is to his people, and in fact, how faithful he is to the Gibeonites. Several Years later, King Saul breaks the covenant with the Gibeonites and he attacks them and he kills many of them. And God, out of judgment for this act, brings a severe famine upon Israel for many years that is not lifted until King David executes seven of Saul's sons to atone for this breaking of the covenant. The Gibeonites realize, wow, God is for us too. And when you look at the list of David's mighty men, you know what you find there? Gibeonites. And you progress through the pages of the scriptures when Nehemiah comes back to Jeremiah to rebuild the wall and ultimately the temple is there and the listing of people, what you find is almost 100 Gibeonites standing next to Nehemiah, building the wall, defending the people of God. How's it possible for a story like this to have such an incredible ending when there was sin, deception, failure at that critical juncture? Only because of this simple truth that I want us to mull on this week as you make your way out of here, that God is committed to our good and His glory despite our sin and folly. We, we, this, this idea was in our prayer earlier this morning that Paxton led us in. And it's clear that God's sovereign power and grace is so mighty that it can ensure that he is glorified even in our sin and in our failures. He can ensure this kind of outcome because though we were once far off, As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, through Jesus, Jesus came and he preached to you who were far off, bringing us into the family of God. As Paul says, or Peter says at Pentecost, this promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. How can God Turn our folly, our foolish decisions, even our sinful decisions into something that is ultimately for our good and for his glory. Well, just as the Gibeonites were cursed due to their sinful decisions, church, we too are cursed by our sin. But this story teaches us something important, that just as the Gibeonites carried wood for the altar, it points us to the one who would one day carry the wood of the cross and lift the sin, curse of sin upon our lives by becoming a curse for us. This act that Jesus did on our behalf is why God can take these sinful, foolish decisions that we will make and will continue to make until He fully redeems us. This is why God can turn those kinds of actions into something ultimately that is redeemable, that will glorify him, that it will in some way help us as Christians. So where does that leave us this morning? If you're a seeker, if you're looking for answers and you've yet to commit your life to Christ and you're looking for truth, I wanna encourage you to realize that you are in the same place that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were in the Pharisees looked at Jesus and he did not check all of the boxes that they had made up for him. But what they did not do is that they did not earnestly seek God's face to see and ask and inquire, is what is being said about Jesus true or not? They already made up their mind. They judged him according to their logic and their common sense and to the practical ramifications of what it would mean to them if they committed their lives to Christ. And when they lit all of that together, they reject him rather than pausing and putting themselves before God and waiting until they hear from him. So if you're looking for truth and you're looking for answers about Jesus, start right there. Pause, stop, begin to pray and ask God, to open your eyes to the truth, to convince you one way or the other about Jesus. And Christian, in this story, I hope that you take comfort. I hope that you take comfort in the truth that God redeems us completely, even our foolish and sinful decisions, some of which maybe you're still having to accept the consequences of. Know that God redeems every one of those foolish sinful decisions. Let me leave you with these encouraging words from J. Oswald Sanders. He writes, God frequently allows the results of our compromises to run their natural course, but he uses them to serve our spiritual development. Only the sovereign God who sent his son for us to become a curse has the kind of power to make that statement true. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not defined by our bad choices. We are not defined by our sinful choices. And even though we may have to accept consequences, your love and your power and your sovereign grace is so extensive that you promise to turn those moments into something that is good for us, that glorifies you. Lord, we thank you for that reality. We would ask, Lord, for the one who's yet to decide about Jesus, would you give them a heart that believes, eyes that see the truth, so that they may come into the family of God. Though they are far off right now, they can be brought near through faith and trust in him. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.